Hey everybody and welcome to week four of One Big Story, this epic journey we're taking together as a church through the pages of the Bible. And believe it or not, we are closing in on the halfway mark of our journey, which seems crazy because we still haven't even gotten out of the book of Genesis, the first book in the Bible, but we are halfway through. And I hope you have been enjoying being a part of this series. I can tell you I have certainly enjoyed and am enjoying teaching it. And I know several of you have shared with me you're, you're learning some new things, things you didn't know were in the Bible. In fact, I got several really nasty emails this week from some of the guys in the church because I let the cat out of the bag about Eve not being there when God gave the directions about not eating from the tree of forbidden fruit, and they didn't like me sharing that, but uh, I shared it anyway. Just a reminder, I didn't write the story, I'm just teaching it, so don't send me bad emails. So, no, seriously, I, I know several of you have said, wow, I never knew that, or I didn't know that part of the story. In fact, let's just quick survey. How many of you have learned at least one new thing about the Bible in the last three weeks? Can I see your hand? Wow, man, maybe we should have named this what I didn't know that I didn't know was in the Bible. But the main thing I hope that you are discovering about the Bible, is not just some of this cool trivia stuff, but what I'm really hoping you are starting to see is that the Bible is not just simply a collection of stories about God. But the Bible is actually the one big story of God. That the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, tells one consistent, continuous story. The story of God's redemptive love and His passionate pursuit of prodigal people like me and like you. And as you're starting to understand the Bible as one big story, I'm also hoping that you are starting to recognize that you have a place in God's story. You are created on purpose for a purpose, and that purpose is found in connecting your story with God's story. And we see that clearly in the words of Apostle Paul uh, from Acts chapter 17. This has kind of been our theme verse for this series. Notice what Paul says. He says, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth. He's over it. He's engaged with it. And then he says, he, talking about God, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. And so because of that, for in him, for in God, we get to live and move and have our being. You know, it's been so cool for me over these last couple of weeks just to see how these ancient stories resonate with the reality of our lives. They, they resonate with our hearts. We can identify with these stories, and they reflect the reality of the modern world we still live in, even though they happened thousands or maybe even hundreds of thousands of years ago. Like last week, I don't think there was a one of us here who, who didn't look at that amazing story of Adam and Eve and the forbidden fruit and not feel like you were kind of looking in a mirror, right? Our, our tendency to, to not trust God and go out of bounds to get what we think God is withholding from us instead of trusting that He is providing everything we need. I think all of us have walked down that road to some extent. And I think all of us have experienced the, the division and the brokenness in our relationships with each other uh, through that story. All of us, I think, could identify with Adam and Eve 
filled with shame, hiding in the bushes, afraid God was going to be mad at them because they went out of bounds. We can see ourselves in the story because we were created to be a part of God's story. And I'm hoping you'll see maybe some of your story in today's story because we're going to continue in the one big story. And today we're going to see how God begins to set a plan and a process in place to clean up the mess that Adam and Eve made. Have you ever had a mess that is so big and so bad that you just didn't even know where to start to begin to clean it up? Like, how do you even start cleaning up something this bad? Years ago, we had a can of Coke explode inside our refrigerator. I don't really know how it happened, if it fell off the shelf or it got too cold and started to freeze. I don't know how it happened. I just know when I opened up the refrigerator, there was Coke everywhere. It was all over the food, the the, uh, metal rails. It was in all the little nooks and crannies. And it wasn't liquid. It was these little syrupy hard dots that had to be scrubbed with warm water. I'm telling you, I saw that mess and I just wanted to close the refrigerator and say, Terry, we need to buy a new fridge. That's how bad it was, right? You don't even want to try. You don't know where to try. Those of you that have teenagers living in your home, you know exactly what I'm talking about, right? You have that feeling every time you walk past their door and look into their room, right? And that's why you just close the door and just keep on moving because you know even if you went in there and cleaned it up completely, two weeks later it'd go right back to the same mess. And I think that is perhaps a little bit of how God felt with the mess we had made of his perfect creation, Because see, when Adam and Eve left the garden, the mess and the brokenness went from bad to worse. The brokenness didn't settle out or level off. It went downhill rapidly. I mean, I know Adam and Eve had some relational differences because of the fall, and it put division between them where there had been no division. They had some relational dysfunction. But by the time they have children... Their children take that relational dysfunction to a whole nother level. Do you know the story about Adam and Eve's two sons, Cain and Abel? One of them kills the other, right? You think, oh, the world, you know, you watch the Murdoch trial and you think, oh, this is so bad. This is not new. This kind of brokenness and mess has been happening since the beginning, since the fall. And it's not just Adam and Eve's family. With every human being born, the brokenness, the sin, the rebellion gets worse and worse. And it literally spreads across the face of the earth like a cancer. In fact, by the time you get three chapters down in Genesis chapter 6, notice how bad it gets. Genesis 6, 5. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. Now that's bad. In fact, it got so bad that God just decided that he was going to flood the joint, just wash the whole place clean and start over with one righteous man, his family, and a boat full of animals. You know that story, right? It's the story of who? Right, you know Noah's story, but do you know that when the flood waters recede, no sooner had the ark touched land 
when Noah and his family messed it up again, they broke this new clean world that God had invited them into? See, that's the question. How do you clean up a mess, not only that's so big and widespread, but a mess that is deeply ingrained into the very nature of the people you're trying to fix? How do you fix that mess? I don't know how you do it. I don't know how I do it, but I know how God does it. And he does it not with a flood, not with a list of 10 do's and don'ts, not with a whole bunch of ritual purification sacrifices. He does it with a man and a plan and a promise. God chooses one man, makes some promises to that man, that sets in motion a plan of redemption and to restore what was broken in the garden. The man God chose was a man named Abram. We actually know him as Abraham. And we find his part of the story in the uh, book of Genesis, beginning with chapter 11. We're going to look at Genesis 11 through 15. So if you've got a Bible or a Bible app, you can follow along. If not, just use something, take some notes on your phone or, or whatever. But as we unpack this part of God's story, we're going to learn three truths about how God cleans up messes. And it's not just how God cleans up this big mess of this broken world, but it's the same way God cleans up the messes that we've made of our individual lives. Three things we learn from this part of the story. One is that God cleans up messes through His power and in His timing. When God cleans up messes, He chooses to do it through His power and in His timing. Now, if you've ever had one of those big bad messes at your house, you know the only way to clean it up is to start somewhere. You got to start somewhere. Pick a corner of the room. Pick a shelf in the refrigerator, but you got to start somewhere. So it's no surprise that God would start with one man. What is incredibly surprising is that he would start with this man, with Abe, because Abe is a nobody from nowhere. You think if you're going to do something amazing in the world, you'd want to start with somebody who's got a little something going on, right? Some influence in the world. But Abe is not that guy. Because see, in that culture, in the world Abe lived in, a man's power and influence was determined by two factors, the size of his family and the length of time he lived in one place. Because see, if you had a big family, a big extended family, there was strength in that. You could defend yourselves against other tribes or other groups of people. You, you, you had a built-in workforce, right? If you had a big family, you had a lot of hands to tend the flock, to plow the fields, to harvest the fields. So in that culture, big family meant big money. Of course, it's the exact opposite of that in our culture today. I can tell you as a father of five kids, big family, not much money. I feel like maybe I was born in the wrong millennium. But you can see how a big family gave you strength and power and wealth. Also, the longer you lived in one place, the more you put down roots in the same place, the more your little family camp would grow. And that little camp of your extended family could become a village. And over time, that village could become a city. And over time, that city could actually become a kingdom that you could influence and impact 
the people and the world around you. Abe's problem is he has neither one of those things going for him. In fact, look at Genesis 11, beginning with verse 30. It says, but Sarah, that's Abe's wife, Sarah was unable to become pregnant and had no children. So one day, Terah, that's Abe's wife, Terah took his son Abraham, his daughter-in-law Sarah, Abe's wife, and his grandson Lot, and moved away from Ur of the Chaldeans, which is where they had been for a long time. And he was headed for the land of Cana, but they stopped at Haran and settled there. You see what's happening here? You, you kind of get the flow of what's going on. Here's Abe. He's, he has no family and no prospects of a family. And this little family he has, this little tribe of four people, is kind of hopping around, not really putting down roots anywhere. And then God, as if to exploit the irony of how weak and powerless Abe is, when God calls Abe, look at what he tells him to do. Genesis 12, 1. The Lord said to Abram, Leave your native country, your relatives, and your father's family, and go to the land that I will show you. In other words, Abraham, leave what little bit of power and influence you have and go somewhere where you're going to have even less power and less influence. Why would God choose to do it that way? I believe it's so that there would be no mistake about who's doing the cleaning. There'd be no mistake about whose power is at play. And I think that speaks to our lives. Because I think we can all confess that when we mess up, we tend to try to fix our issues in our own strength. Right? We got, you got to pull yourself up by your bootstraps. You know, if it's meant to be, it's up to me. That's kind of how we try to deal with our messes. And the reality is, when we do that, don't we tend to make it worse? Don't we tend to, to make the problem even worse? And yet, we, we approach God that way. I mean, how many of you have said to yourself, man, I, I got to get my act together, and then I'm going to let God make me a part of his story. I, I got, if I clean up, I'm going to clean up my mess, and then I'm going to come to God, and he's going to move and work in through me. But from the very beginning of the story, God makes it crystal clear that his plan is built on our dependency in him, not the level of power and influence that we can create on our own. That's why 2,000 years later, the apostle Paul would say that God's strength is made perfect in our weakness. That's why Paul said, I will even brag about my weakness because it's in my dependency on him that God can really do something in and through my life. Now, I know there are many of us sitting in here today, we have lived long enough and made messes even worse by trying to fix them ourselves. We recognize our dependency on God. You know, I say this all the time. If you live long enough, life will eventually get bigger than you can handle on your own. And so some of us have gotten to that place. You know, we know we're dependent on God. The problem is, because we're dependent on God's power, that means we have to wait on God's timing. And we don't do well with waiting on God to fix 
our problems. Because if you're like me, if I got a prayer request on Monday, I'm looking for a solution on Tuesday, Wednesday morning at the latest. But God doesn't work in our timing. And this is really amazing, very interesting in this part of God's story. Because see, in the world that Abe was living in, God had been silent for hundreds of years. He had not, there, there was no Bible to show people what God was like. There's no Ten Commandments. There are no prophets going around telling people what God is like. Now, human beings knew there had to be something bigger than themselves. Because remember, all human beings are created in God's image. God has placed eternity in the hearts of all human beings. And God reveals himself through creation around us. So people knew there's a higher power. They just didn't know what that higher power was like. And so they just kind of created these gods for themselves. All these family groups, these tribes, these kingdoms, they all had multiple gods. And it was generally agreed upon that the strength of a nation revealed the strength of the God that that nation worshipped. So if you had a big, powerful nation, then you just thought, well, their God is really big and powerful. That is how people thought. And so God just decided to begin revealing himself to the world by using the culture that existed in Abraham's day. That he was going to reveal himself to the world through a nation. But instead of starting with an existing powerful nation that was already there, God decides he's going to reveal himself through a nation, but he's going to start that nation from scratch. From Abraham. One of the promises he made to Abraham is you're going to be the father of a mighty nation. How long does it take to grow a nation from one 75-year-old man, his 65-year-old wife, who have no children. How long does that take? It takes a long time for help to come through that nation, right? It's like calling 911 and they say, we'll be there as soon as we can build an ambulance. Let us build this ambulance from scratch and then your help is coming. And that's why many of us feel frustrated by God's timing because God works on his own time, his own good time, and that's hard for us. But I have some good news for you. Even though we have to wait on God's timing and he rarely moves and acts in our time frame, here's an anchor we can hold on to while we're waiting on God to act. And this is the second thing God does to clean up messes is he does it by keeping his promises. God cleans up messes by keeping his promises. See, when God calls Abraham to move, take his family, and go to a place I'm going to show you. He gives, God, he gives Abe three amazing promises. They're found in Genesis 12, verses 2 through 3. This is what God promises to Abe. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you and make you famous. You're going to be famous, Abe. And you will be a blessing to others. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who treat you with contempt. And then this is the big promise. All the families on the earth, all these family groups, these cities, these kingdoms, all those families on the earth will be blessed through you. The literal translation says, will be blessed in you, Abraham. Let's walk through these promises so you understand them. Promise one, I'm going to make you a great nation. Anybody know the name of the nation 
that came from Abraham? What are the descendants of Abraham called today? Anybody know? Shout it out. Israel. You can say it. You're right. Israel, right? You've heard of the nation of Israel, right? Let me ask you this. Have you heard of the nation of Kish? Do you know much about the nation of Kish? How about the Ur of the Chaldeans? You see much about the news, them in the news? That's where Abraham, that's the nation Abraham left, right? Those were the two most powerful nations on the face of the earth when God called Abraham. And yet, you've never even heard of them. But the children of Abraham, the nation of Israel, you've not only heard of them, they continue to be, to this day, a major player on the world's stage. My point, promise made, promise kept. Second promise, Abe, I'm going to make you famous. Just curious, how many of you had heard of Abraham before you came in here today? Let me see your hands. Yeah, that's almost all of you. And look, it's not just us as Christians who read the Bible that know about Abraham. Three-quarters of the people on the planet today not only know who Abraham is, but they point to Abraham as the founding father of their faith. All Christians, all Jews, all Muslims look to Abraham as the father of their faith. Look, even if you don't believe the Bible, you've got to admit, that's a strange coincidence. Promise made, promise kept. And then the third promise, this is the most important one. God says all the families, all the people on the earth will be blessed through you. What does that mean? That means that God said, Abe, through your descendants, a worldwide redeemer will come and will once and for all fix the brokenness from the garden will once and for all defeat sin and death and hell. Anybody you know sound like a worldwide redeemer who once and for all broke the power of sin? Anybody you know fit that bill? It's Jesus, right? You know what nation Jesus is descended from? The nation of Israel, from Abraham. And you say, whoa, 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 wait a minute, Philip. That might be a bridge too far. How do you go from just this nebulous line about all the families in the earth are going to be blessed through you or in you, Abraham? How do you connect the dots from that nebulous promise to Jesus, the specific Jesus being that answer? How do you do that? Well, I don't do it. God's Word does it. The Apostle Paul, 2,000 years after Abraham, 2,000 years back from where we're sitting today, writes these words in Galatians 3.8. He says, Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles. That's all of us, the non-descendants of Abraham, all the people of the earth, by faith. And he announced the gospel. That's the story of Jesus. In advance to Abraham when he said, all nations will be blessed through you. See, that's the most amazing thing to me. Not just about this part of the story, but about God's whole story. Right? That Jesus was not some New Testament plan B solution to the Old Testament plan problem of sin. Jesus has always been the solution. From the very beginning, 
Right? God was not sitting up in heaven just trying different things to fix the brokenness. Well, let's try a flood. Well, that didn't work. All right, well, let's try Ten Commandments. Let's try the law. Let's try behavior modification. Uh, let's try ri- religious rituals and sacrifices. No. Jesus has always been the solution. He's in every part of the story. He was in the story of creation, remember? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. You saw him last week in the garden, remember? Crushing the heel of the serpent. And you see now the promise of Jesus right here in Abe's story. Listen, Jesus is not a character in God's story. Jesus is God's story. He's always been the redemption plan. And here's how this connects to your story. Not only is Jesus your Redeemer, but as you look at these amazing promises that God made to Abraham and how unbelievable it is that all of those promises have come true, thousands of years we sit and we can see that, don't forget this. The same God who was able to make and keep these remarkable promises to Abraham is the God who is making and keeping promises to you right now today. And unlike Abraham who got three promises, you have over 3,000 promises of God that you can anchor your life to. Now I know you read these promises in the Bible and they feel hollow because they don't match your circumstances. But you read where God says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And yet you've never felt more alone. Or God promises that I will supply all of your needs according to my riches in heaven. But you wake up every morning wondering how the mortgage is going to get paid. How are you going to keep the lights on? Or you read God's promise that he will give you beauty for the ashes of your life. And you want to believe in it, but every day you keep waking up covered by the ashes. And you're wondering, when is he going to fulfill these promises? When is it going to happen? Where is God in the brokenness of my life? And it's in those dark moments of the night. I want to encourage you, let those questions about God lead you to the most important truth about God. The most important truth, the most important piece of information on this planet is this third way that God cleans up messes. If you don't get anything else, get this. He does it by establishing a relationship based on trust. God does it by establishing a relationship with us based on trust. If you've been with us the last couple of weeks, you know, it's very obvious God desires, the God of the universe, yes, desires to be in a relationship, an intimate, connected relationship with each and every one of us. That's part of why he created us in his image, so that we could love him back. And you you see God so desiring a relationship with us that he comes looking for Adam and Eve when they're covered in fig leaves and forbidden fruit, desiring to restore that connection. It's, no, it's obvious 
that God wants to be in a relationship with us. But the reality is there is no relationship without trust. You can't have a relationship without trust. You can have some kind of dysfunctional, jacked up codependency thing without trust. But a true, fulfilling relationship requires trust, right? You ever tried to be in a relationship with somebody you don't trust? Or with somebody that doesn't trust you? It's not going to happen. And it's the same with God. He desires us to trust Him and trust His promises even when we can't feel it, even when we can't see it, even when our external circumstances scream everything but He can be trusted. And I'm going to show you where you see this in Abe's life. You actually have to go all the way to Genesis chapter 15 because by this point we found that Abe has done what God asked him to do. Sort of. He has left, uh, taking his wife Sarah, and he's left his, his father, Terah, but he didn't leave behind Lot. I don't know why he chose to take his nephew with him, because God said, just take your wife and leave. Maybe he thought, you know, I could use another guy, you know, two are better than one. I don't know, but he takes his nephew Lot with him, and it becomes a colossal disaster, because Lot is a knuckleheaded. This knuckleheaded nephew of Abraham, you, you read Genesis 13 and 14, he's always getting not just himself in trouble, but he's creating all kinds of issues and problems for Abraham. You know, he's traveling in this little band just trying to not get beat up and killed, and Lot's out doing all kinds of stuff. People are coming after Abraham. In fact, chapter 14 of Genesis, somehow knucklehead Lot gets himself and his wife captured, not just by one king but by the army of four kings who have bonded together and built this mega super army. They're trying to take over everything. And Lot gets captured by them. And I'm sure Abe is like, oh my God, how are we going to get him back? We ought to just leave him there. He's such a knucklehead, but you know, he's family. You can't leave family there. So somehow Abe gathers together about 300 mercenary soldiers, 300 men, which is nothing compared to this huge army of the four kings. They sneak into the camp at night. They rout the army. They rescue Lot and his wife, and they bring them back home, and it's like, yay, victory. But at some point, I'm sure Abe is sitting in his tent going, oh, dear God, what have I done? Now I got four kings and their army coming after me because I've killed their soldiers, and I've, I've rescued this prisoner that they're going to get a bounty for. And so Abe's sitting in his discouraged and scared to death. And God shows up and says, Abe, I am your shield and your sword. You don't need a big army. I am there with you. And I imagine Abraham was like, I hear you, God, and I appreciate the promise. But you know, you made a promise to me 25 years ago that I was going to be the father of a mighty nation. I was going to have a big, strong family. We ain't got a kid yet. And I'm 100, and Sarah's 95. I keep thinking I'm going to walk out of my tent one day and be the father of a mighty nation, this huge nation, and I ain't even got a child. And look at how God responds to that, Genesis 15, 5 and 6. It says, Then the Lord took Abram outside and said to him, Look up into the sky and count the stars if you can. That's how many descendants you will have. He renews the promise. And look at what Abraham does. This is remarkable. It says, And Abram believed the Lord, 
And the Lord counted him as righteous because of his faith. Do you see that? He doesn't count Abe as righteous because of his behavior, but because of his faith. And understand this. This is pivotal to God's story. This verse establishes the foundation on which henceforth and forevermore broken, jacked up prodigals like me can be in an intimate, restored relationship with a perfect and holy God. And it's this verse that is the foundation of how God will ultimately clean up the broken mess of this world we live in. And this is huge, and I hope I can communicate this in a way that you understand. When God decided to start cleaning up the mess that we made, he did not start with a list of ten thou shalts and thou shalt nots. He didn't start with a bunch of rules that we had to follow. He started with one simple request. Trust me. Abe was declared right with God, not because of his obedience to God, but because of his willingness to trust in God. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying obedience is not important. We're going to talk next week about the Ten Commandments and why they matter. What I'm just saying is that obedience is not the route to a relationship with God. Obedience is the result of a relationship that already exists. And that's not only true for Abe, it's still true for every one of us today. That's why Paul writes in Romans 3, we are made right with God by placing our faith, our trust, in Jesus Christ. And this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who we are. Starts with trust. So let me ask you, where do you need to trust God a little more right now? You got a relationship, maybe you got a kid, prodigal, maybe you got a marriage, maybe you got a job situation, you're looking at that and you're, you're hearing all these promises of God restoring and beauty for ashes and you're like, when, when, when? Is that some place you could take a step of faith? Trust God? Maybe for some of you it's to take that first step of faith. To choose to believe that Jesus is who he says he is. And he did what he said he did in the story. He is the redeemer. He is the only one that can restore. Maybe it starts with taking that first step of faith. I, I don't know. I don't know where you need to trust him. I do know this. Until you start to trust him, that mess is never going to get better. And as long as you try to do it on your own, it's always going to get worse. So would you pray with me? I don't know what you brought in here with you today. I don't know what view you had of God or what he's like. But I hope today you recognize he is passionately pursuing you. You're not sitting in one of our campuses. You're not logged in on Facebook or YouTube by accident today. God brought you here to invite you into his story and to help you understand that that invitation is accepted through faith and trust, not through behavior modification and cleaning up your act. He's calling all of us today 
to look up into the heavens, to look at the stars, just like he did Abe, and be reminded of who he is and that he is mindful of every little detail of our lives. Oh, Father, give us the guts and the courage to trust you more today. It's in your name we pray. Amen.